The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. It's a beautiful full moon. Probably noticed the beautiful shed outside that a number of community members have been working on this weekend. Corey Needleman and Denny Johnson and Glenn Christensen, Matt Buzzard and a number of other people. Jerry, who's often here on Wednesdays, and a lot of other people uh, worked really hard. So this will give our snowblower a place, shovels a place, all the garden tools will be have a home. So thanks to all the volunteers and people who made that possible. Susan Rosen kind of walked us through the ordering and just negotiating and getting the shed here. It's just kind of nice to see these tangible things. Sometimes a lot of the work is sort of small and incremental, but when you have a big project like that, that three days ago there was nothing, and now there's this good-smelling cedar shed outside. Almost finished, not quite. So I thought I'd begin the night just checking in with people. Um, we don't always do uh, metta or compassion, loving kindness or compassion meditations, but I thought it'd be nice, partly because it's uh, useful to see the connection between a more directed meditation as opposed to open attention meditation or a breath meditation where we're using, we're not really using much thought in the meditation. But with a compassion practice or a loving-kindness practice, we can use some thoughts. We can use some, use the power of imagination actually to support the meditation. So I thought we'd just take a few minutes to check in, see if people have any questions about this kind of meditation, or even just sharing a little bit about what you noticed uh, through the course of the meditation tonight. So anything come to mind? Feel anything in your hearts? Truly. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that I had to stay with myself and my, my heart. It's almost like I'm a little on the tired side, and if I started thinking about other people, tend to drift off and mm-hmm. sleep. <laughs> Well, in a way, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter because if we can, if we're willing to be close with our own heart, our own body, our own life situation, to breathe it in, so to speak, and to have good wishes, you know, for the well-being of this body, mind. You know, if we can do that here with this body and mind, it's actually a relatively small step to do it with our partners or with our friends or with the whole world. So it's okay just to stay with ourselves. Like, for example, let's say you took two hours just to do this practice or a whole weekend to do this practice just for yourself. You weren't allowed to bring anybody else to mind. Well, as soon as you walk out of the door of the retreat and you see somebody on the street, you'll notice this, just how easy it is to bring the practice into the next moment. So there shouldn't be any thoughts like, oh, this is really self-centered, you know, being intimate with my own body or being intimate with my own life situation. I should really be caring about all beings. It's really not understanding how it works. The actual way it works is if we practice being intimate, if we practice being loving or compassionate, it's a, it's kind of has a natural universality. It just goes everywhere. It doesn't matter where we begin, so we should begin where it's easy or where the mind is naturally drawn. Sometimes that will be our own life situation, our own heart, our own body. Sometimes, for you know, because of circumstances, it might be somebody we know who their happiness or their suffering is especially poignant to us and easy to bring to mind. The mind wants to think about that. So in this kind of meditation where we're using thought, we're using life, you know, life situation, 
then we should bring to mind whatever is hot or whatever is uh, engaging for us and work with it. Any other thoughts? Yes, Judy. mysterious, of course, and uh, you know, I don't need to say that. We all know that. But we don't often let ourselves tune in to this, the mystery of this body and its, uh, and its fragility and vulnerability. And it has a powerful effect on the mind. It's like uh, you know, when we're young, we think we're masters of the universe just because we have a lot of vitality and health. And there's a kind of ignorance or arrogance in that. So there are advantages to getting older because it, it does tend to, that attitude tends to diminish as we get older. But we don't need to wait till we get old or till we get ill. We can just recognize our fragility, the fragility of the body, even the fragility of our good mood. You know, so let's say you, you're young and you do feel like you're master of the universe. Well, all you have to do is remember yesterday where you didn't feel like master of the universe, you know, and you felt like no one loves me or I'm not good at things or, you know, whatever you might have felt a few days ago to feel that vulnerability. So if it's not the body that we're especially in tune with, then just the vulnerability of how we feel about ourselves or how we feel about the world. I mean, for some people, uh, opening up to the ecosystem may be the easy way. You know, just to kind of tune in to the fragility of this ecosystem we call the Earth and how vulnerable it is to change and fragile it is. And to breathe that in and to exhale our care, our good wishes, knowing that the, you know, the health of this body, the health of our friends, the well-being of our friends, the well-being of ourselves, the well-being of the whole Earth is beyond our control. But yet... This is the great thing. This is the mystery. We're willing to breathe it in. We're willing to be close anyway, even though we're not in control, even though we can't make everything right. We breathe it in, and we still wish well for it. We still offer a good wish, because even though we're not in control, it's still a beautiful thing to wish well for ourselves or for another. Even if it's, you know, let's just make a gross assumption that it's going to have no positive effect. But it does at least have a positive effect in our own heart. When I have warm wishes for my partner or for a common ground community, I know, no matter what you tell me, I know for myself that it has a positive effect to have that good wish. So we can just start there, like having these good wishes. Maybe you even noticed that tonight at the end, I suggested just sort of check in and notice the effect from the practice. And maybe you noticed, like, well, I, the heart feels a little bit more tender, the mind feels a little bit more real, more connected, more wholesome, more whole. These are the qualities that we want to begin to notice because it's like a barometer. It's sort of teaching us what kind of practice is useful in healing the mind, healing the heart. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. Eddie. I just wondered about right now in my, my mind heart is, is really leaning toward aversion to offering myself compassion and I 
I tried to include that in terms of caring about this heart that has this strong aversion, um, this self-hatred. Um, but it's predominant, and it and there's a sticky kind of storyline. And so I just, I don't know. I felt a little, I mean, I felt a perseverance and a courage in my heart opening up, but I also felt a fear about opening up to that aversion and breathing that aversion in because it, it's a, so there's such a foundation there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how to work with that? Well, you know, you have, we have two um, possibilities in a situation like that. One is just to turn the attention to something that is uh, easy for us. Like it can be, literally, it can be something as easy as bringing to mind the dead squirrels we see on the road that have been hit by cars, you know, something like that. That we don't, there's no charge, you know, in terms of our relationship to squirrels. <laughs> And it, like, it can be easy just to see the vulnerability of these animals. They're just trying to live their life, you know, just trying to get their acorns. And unfortunately, they live where there are a lot of cars. And there's just a matter of odds, you know, before they don't have the instinct to kind of judge the speed and the direct, you know. So they're just, it's just a matter of odds. Certain number are going to get hit playing in the trees, getting their food, things like that. So we can bring that to mind. We don't need to go right to the, where it's really hurting because we might not have the space in the mind or the perspective, the wisdom, that will allow us to get close to that pain. But we can look at that. But then the, the thing that I said before, it's, such a, it's a relatively easy bridge. Once the heart starts opening, once the heart starts connecting, once the heart starts to realize this natural generosity of caring. I mean, that's what caring is. Caring is a natural gift giving. We're giving away a caring heart, a, a well-wishing for another being or for ourselves. So once it's doing that with the squirrels, you might just be able to bridge and just notice that you know, the behavior of this mind and body is a lot like the conditioning that squirrels have. You know, their, their conditioning is to do this and to do that, where the condition of this mind and body is to do this and to do that. And sometimes I get hit by a car, or you get hit by a car, you know, a bad relationship or a bad job experience, or, you know, we do something stupid or we get attached to something, and then there's a lot of pain. But it's not that different than a squirrel misjudging the car, you know, or, you know, getting hurt but not killed, or... And so we start to see that, oh my God, we're all vulnerable. We're basically all beings doing the best we can, making mistakes, getting caught in our mistakes, suffering, the inevitable suffering that comes with embodied existence. And this is how it is. And the heart, the mind, has the capacity to be tenderized by this. And in a way, you know, we've been talking about wisdom the last several weeks, if you haven't been part of the group recently, and the birth of wisdom actually is the heart, the mind's proximity to difficulty. It's like wisdom is defined by a heart that can be intimate with things as they are, can see things as they are, be intimate with things as they are, relaxed with things as they are. So how do we discover, how do we realize that wisdom? Well, we get close to things as they are, to the ordinary difficulty in life, the ordinary insecurity in life, we get close, and then there's this tension between wanting to react to the way it is and discovering or realizing the possibility to be open, to be undefended. That's what wisdom is. It's discovering the heart that can be open and undefended with the actual conditions of our lives. And it's possible, but we have to play with the difficulty. So one is to start where it's easy and then to bridge. The other is, if it feels right, to just persevere. And uh, the image I like, I mentioned this morning, Joseph Goldstein and others, teachers have used, but I think Joseph Goldstein came up with this image of uh, the heart as red hot metal. You probably know this, you know, and it's like you do the phrase, but in a way the heart mind, it doesn't want to hear it, you know, and it's like cool water hitting red hot metal. But you just keep doing the phrase, keep doing the practice, and you're cooling the heart. 
And it might even feel like someone's doing surgery. You know, sometimes people, I myself included, you experience like something's cracking or breaking or something's dead, you know, but sort of coming to life. Or some people know Kamala Masters, a wonderful teacher and one of the senior teachers that comes and visits and teaches once a year. And she has this really graphic image of, you know, holding your fist like this. If you hold it long enough, and then somebody, or you, you ask yourself to open it, it will really hurt to release the fist. It's a little bit like that with the heart. The heart can get really tight. You know, one difficult, challenging, painful condition after another, and we don't have enough wisdom, enough space in the mind to deal with the pain that's coming up. So we tighten, and then the next bad thing happens, and we tighten, you know, and we get the heart gets really defended, really numb, really suppressed, hard. And then when we start doing these kind of practices, it can be very painful, really like we're hitting a wall. So sometimes the path is just to persevere, especially if you can find that you're connecting, like as you repeat the phrase or just even without a wordless practice, so you're not even using words in your mind, but you're just breathing in with the sense of intimacy, exhaling with the sense of love, something like that then if you, as long as you feel like you're connecting with wholesome qualities, even if there's a lot of hatred, a lot of reactivity in the mind, but there's a thread of wholesomeness in the practice, then it's just so you might just want to stick with it. Come hell or high water, you know, just stick with it. And you're not focusing on the reactivity, on the tss, you know. So even if, you know, there's a lot of, um, you idiot doing this practice, I mean, then you just, you just, it's like you're not paying attention. Just like if you had a three-year-old tantruming. I hate you, mommy. <laughs> you know, the mother's not going to listen to it. You know, she understands the baby's just really upset. So we just kind of keep at it, keep up with the soothing, being patient, knowing that the intention is good. You know, the, the intention is not bad. We can really trust the intention. Yeah, so check back with us and let us know. It's always nice to hear stories of people going through difficult experiences and coming off the other end. You know, like that, oh, I guess I didn't need to back away. I guess I didn't need to shut down. Even though, you know, of course we do in moments. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Paul. Both my grandmothers, who I knew well, have died, and oftentimes during sitting meditation, I sit with them and receive their good wishes, and uh, I realize that it is available to me in uh, as real a way as it ever was. And then I also go the other direction and um, send blessings to those who may not yet be born and yet I understand that uh, perhaps they will receive the benefit of long conditions. So maybe it's just a wonderful way that time comes uh, away. Yeah. Yeah, and, and one of the nice things about that kind of reflection, like right now, there have been men and women and who knows what other beings uh, powerfully holding this aspiration for all beings to be safe, protected, happy, and peaceful. Very powerful beings have been doing this for a long time. And where is this energy? Well, it's a, if it's anywhere, it's got to be here, alive here. And a lot of us in the West, you know, depending on your particular upbringing, you know, a lot of us don't feel right about inviting in the beneficent, wholesome forces in the universe. And it's a kind of arrogance, I think. It's like, you know, if we can't see it, it doesn't exist. I mean, there are a lot of things we can't see that exist. We can't see gravity, it exists. We, we don't have any trouble believing in gravity, but we do have trouble kind of opening up to that. But I tell you, if you just practice, you will discover 
There's a lot of beauty to open to. And of course, there have been a lot of ignorant and hateful and uh, narrow mental energy projected for a long time. And we can also tap into that. And we can get really caught up in paranoid ideas and conspiratorial ideas, because these things also have a lot of psychic momentum. You know, just we, uh, some of us are really kind of aware of just recently in the last 10 years or so, how much just fear that in this, how easy it is to be divisive, to kind of, you know, whether it's in politics or in all kinds of different ways. Just easy to get sucked into that. But we have to remember the positive side also exists. We just have to be willing to open that door and to, in a sense, invite it in. One thought I had too, Paul, about what you said, you know, about bringing your grandmothers to mind. I mean, one thing to, to look at too is that their love for you that they modeled made a deep imprint in your heart. So it's like that sympathetic vibration. Your heart is basically taking up, I mean, it's sort of continuing. The continuation of their love is this your own love and care for yourself. And this is like another example of that sympathetic vibration, how we are like that. I don't know if you've heard this experiment that was done a while ago, because I, I remember reading about it a long time ago. Sort of sad how they do this, but they took uh, cells from frogs, a frog's heart, and they were still alive. They kept them alive, and they were pumping away. You know, they're probably muscle cells. And uh, when they bring them close together, they come into sync with one another. And this is true too. You know, if we're around a lot of hateful people, and if we have that tendency, that conditioning in our own mind it will be relatively easy for us to start vibrating in that kind of hatred. And if we're around a lot of love, a lot of patience, a lot of compassion, we, and we have that kind of conditioning in us, which we all do to some degree, we'll start to vibrate in that way, that sympathetic resonance. So when we hang around someone like our grandmom, grandmother, who has a lot of unconditional love for us, you know, and we really let it in, it makes a deep imprint. It becomes basically our own conditioning. It's not even the grandmother's conditioning anymore. We've, we're now the next generation of that love. And like you said, you suggested, we can be the one sort of setting in emotion, building the momentum in others. It's the same with all <coughs> these different expressions of wisdom, whether it's love or compassion or joy or equanimity. I mean, there are many different qualities patience, gratitude, that we can be walking role models. And again, it's not even like a direct transmission where we'd have to go up to, I mean, an indirect transmission or a sort of, Todd, I want to talk to you about equanimity. I'm going to you know, help you become more equanimous. It's really through the direct modeling. I mean, it's really being in that space is the gift we give to other people. And generally, if we have to talk much about it, <laughs> I should watch what I say now. <laughs> you know, it's not necessary. I mean, it's much more about who we are than what we say in the end. Other thoughts people have? Yes, I don't know your name. Lina. Lina? Nice to meet you. You know, I was thinking of the monks who said that they were going to be a monk. I couldn't hear you. Could you say that again? I was thinking of the monks who. Of course, it would really depend on where the person's heart was. But you can ima I mean, I can imagine that, I mean, if the, if the person is angry, angry at the war, angry at the stupidity that led to the war, and the act comes out of anger, I'm not sure how useful it is for that person, let alone for the other people. 
But I can certainly imagine that somebody could see that, my gosh, the world is caught in ignorance, acting out of ignorance. There's got to be some way to help wake people up to what the kind of decisions and the impact of the decisions people are making, countries are making. What can I do? How can I get people's attention? And really coming from that real act of generosity. But the real important question is, how can that image that we've all, know most of us have seen of these Vietnamese monks starting themselves on fire in these intersections back in the 60s or maybe early 70s, you know, how can we use that image? And one thing that we can do is we can let the mystery touch our heart. You know, just the, the messiness of life. It's In a way, it's like a, such an example of that, regardless of what the intention of the monk was, because we'll never know that. But what we can do is just let it touch the heart. That we live in a world where somebody would have to do that, would be moved to do that, for whatever reason, good reasons or bad reasons. And uh, it is a powerful image, uh, you know, and it, and it does stick with us. And we really want to use that. So when we read the news or when we tell each other stories, you know, it's so easy to just sort of, uh, in a way, like uh, just get stimulated by the drama of the story and not really take the time to let the heart be touched by what we're seeing, what we're talking about. You know, even really beautiful things like the little kids trick-or-treating. And to, there's so many beautiful things and really tragic things. Like just in that simple scene of seeing four kids in front of you, you know, and part of it is just so beautiful and letting that touch your heart. Just the natural enthusiasm of children and the natural happiness. But it's also just as easy to tune into the deep-seated greed in human beings, you know, and the neediness. And, and to let that touch the heart, too. So this is how we want to live. We, we want to let our heart be that exposed, that undefended. So we're, we're constantly being touched. Like even right now, we can be touched that 60 people or so would be showing up on a Sunday night to do these practices, to learn about these practices, and be really touched by that. You know? And we can notice other things that maybe aren't so beautiful um, that we can be touched by, too. Yeah, until the heart just uh, just becomes comfortable being exposed and undefended. I mean, that's really the purpose of life, is to, is to let it in and let it have its effect on the heart. Because the tendency, the ego tendency, is to think the heart can't handle it, so let me control, let me filter out, let me define the experience so that I don't have to be touched by it. Well, that monk was confused, or you know, you know, we just we want to tell ourselves a story instead of just letting the mystery be the mystery. Who knows? Who knows what it means? Other thoughts? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and. You know, one thing to do, Arthur, just in general, in your own practice and whenever you're here at Kamagam, is, well, first of all, whenever you're here, you can do whatever practice you want. You just have to learn to tune out my instructions because once you get a sense of what's useful for yourself, then that might be the, the best thing to do. But I encourage all of us to incorporate something at the beginning of the sit, like what we did tonight, and let it last as long as it feels appropriate. But to save some time in the middle of the sit to not be so dependent on a directed meditation. You want to explore not, uh, uh, yeah, not, not wanting to uh, work with thought in that directed way, but to just let go more thoroughly and just let the mind move let sensations move, and really rely on the capacity of the heart just to see things clearly, just to know what's happening, but not directing what's happening. 
and to begin to reflect on the inherent freedom as we see everything's moving, everything's unfolding, everything's impersonal. Any grasping, even grasping, even directing the mind toward compassion, there's some tension there, even though it's very healing to do. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but I think it's good to know these other practices. Now, some people might take up compassion or loving-kindness practice for a whole year, and it might be the best thing you can do, really, just to do that exclusively for the whole year. But at least it's good to incorporate in our weekly practice, whether it's a little bit at the beginning or a little bit at the end, or one day a week or a couple days a week, you just do the compassion practice or the loving-kindness practice. And although it's nice to hear somebody guide it, it's even better to be able to guide ourselves through it. But you might need to hear somebody do it a few times. I meant to record it tonight to get it up on the website, but I will record some of the loving-kindness practices to get it up on our website. But if you go to dharmaseed.org, there are a number of really good teachers, and you can find some guided meditations to loving-kindness or compassion guided meditations that you can download there at dharmaseed.org. People like Sharon Salzberg and Kamala Masters probably has some of her um, guided meditations up there, too. Dharmaseed, S-E-E-D. Uh, S-E-E-D. Oh. Yeah, dharmaseed.org. Yeah, it's the site for a lot of the senior Vipassana teachers, their talks and guided meditations. Yeah, Leslie. I really like what you said about how grounding it is to be intimate in this way, even though what we're intimate with is sadness. You know, normally we think we'd want to run from sadness or fix it, but that it actually feels good because there's a real difference between opening to sadness and being a sad person. They're like a world apart. They're different universes, actually. And when you were talking last night, I was reminded of something I read maybe earlier today even. Uh, an article that I got a long time ago from um, an interaction between Thich Nhat Hanh and a small child. He often walks with uh, children. When he does mindful walks, the children get to hold his hand. They walk up with him, and then the adults follow. And once when they were on a walk, one of the children asked Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, what color is this tree? And uh, this is, I'm thinking of when you asked, you know, what's the sadness about? It's like we want to know. And Tikkan Han, you know, just had the wherewithal not to say gray or brown or whatever, you know. He said, it's the color that you're seeing, you know. So what's the sadness about? Well, it's about what we're feeling. This is what it's about. This is what it is. It's this feeling itself. This is its truth. We don't need to, in a way, defend ourselves or control it by giving it a story. It doesn't mean that there aren't more appropriate stories or less appropriate stories to associate with this pain or this feeling. But we don't need the story. We can just have that raw, present moment reality of the heart is like this. And uh, that's what's so grounding. And it wouldn't have been as grounding if you, you know, immediately laid a story down on top of it. Because then the story would have led to another story, you know? It's, it's not easy to have a story that just is an end in itself. Thoughts tend to lead to proliferation. That's 
could be one of the universal laws about the conditioned mind. If Leslie. Other thoughts? Does it include fantasy life? Or how do we relate to fantasy life? Or does it say what you're not No, I think we just want to understand it. You know, understand what it is. So when we use our imagination, and the trouble with imagination is, on a visceral level, on a physical level, we don't know the difference between reality, or what we call reality, and imagination. So like if I imagine I'm going to be run over by a train and I really imagine it, you know, I start getting the same physiological response as if I were actually in front of a train about to be run over. You know, this is why we go to movies. We get some kind of experience without, you know, actually getting blown to bits <laughs> or falling in love or all these things that we see in the movies. We get some kind of visceral experience from it. So this is the thing about imagination. This is why it's so intoxicating, why we like to live in our imagination so much. We can literally get lost. And in some schools of Buddhism, and I think generally the way the Buddha taught, this reality we call our consensual reality is also very much created in the way that dreams are constructed, in the way, ways that imaginations are constructed. And so uh, we want to understand the nature of these constructions. That's really what the point in Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, is we want to understand what are these mental constructions that we mostly live inside of. And we want to understand this because we discover that we're often stressed and burdened by the stories, by this, what we construct. And we're wondering, is there another way? Do we need to be so burdened? Do we need to be so stressed? Like, one story we all have that we live inside of is, I'm going to die, and that's not good. Does anybody not have that story? <laughs> but, but when we look at it, I know it's funny, but when we look at it, do you see it's just a story? Like, why do we have to have that story? Why couldn't we have a story, I'm going to die, and that's fine? Do you know what I mean? But we have a story that dying is bad. This is an, nobody, dis, very few people dispute this story. Everyone just agrees. And we're very happy to keep watering this story. You know, so we hear somebody dies, we go, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> it's true. Mm -hmm. Sure that there were 
we don't know what it is, we do know it is what it is, you know, it's inevitable. And, and maybe we don't need to have any value on it at all. So it's not like we're going to switch from death is bad to death is good. But maybe it's just death. It's just what it is. And, uh, you know, some people don't want to die and die, and some people do want to die, and we really have to struggle before the body stops, like Judy was saying, you know, like... It's true with uh, Wynn's father, too, in his last week. You know, just how the all the systems are conditioned to keep pumping, to keep moving. That's what they do, even though it gets more and more of a struggle for all the whole system. It just has its ancient momentum to keep going. And there's very clearly the sense of knowing the inevitability of it eventually ending and just kind of... Uh, Feeling the, the gratitude when it when the system could just do what it was meant to do. It's meant to live, and then it's meant to to stop at some point. Yeah. Reminds me of a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. That Jack Kornfield tells. Some of you might have heard of it, but somebody told Jack Kornfield, if you don't know, he's a well-known teacher and author, Buddhist teacher and author. Um, and somebody once told him of a situation with their kids. Uh, one young girl needed some kind of, uh, forget what it was, if it was blood or, um, but it needed to be special and it had to come from her brother. Her brother was really the only donor. And so the, he was like five or six years old. And the doctors and the parents sat down with this little boy and asked, would you be willing to share with your sister this, I don't know if it was blood or what, but probably blood. Kidney. Was it a kidney? Yeah. And uh, the boy said he had to think about it. And the, they thought, well, that's sort of unusual that you want to think about it. And, I don't know how long, maybe a day or so later, he said, yeah, I'm willing to do this. And they set it up, and as they, you know, as the day came and they got the place and getting the operation all prepped, um, the little boy asked the doctor, um, so uh, maybe you remember, did he just ask, when am I going to die? Mm -hmm. Remember? Um, or, or something. Yeah. Like yeah. But it was basically just he had assumed that he had to give his life away to save his sister. He didn't realize it was just, you know, borrowing part of his body or taking part of his body and he'd be fine. And uh, so it's just sort of similar to that kind of natural uh, capacity that human beings have. And we lose it because we have a really strong story. You know, and then you there are a lot of examples where people in the in the moment lose the story and they're able to sacrifice themselves, you know, like in a war setting or a mother taking care of a child. But when we have a really entrenched story, when we have the time to let the mind proliferate about my life, about my hopes and dreams, then it becomes really hard to let go. But it isn't necessarily hard to let go in a moment. 
you know, how even this is kind of a silly example, but you might get the connection. I love to swim in the ocean, but I notice as I get older, it's harder just to dive in when it's cold. And uh, you know how it is, like if you stand there, you know, kind of creeping in little by little, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> and it's like, like the best, of course, is just to be playful with somebody and this and think, okay, let's go just run in. And you just run in, and it's not a problem at all. But if you're sitting there, standing in the water, you know, up to your genitals, <laughs> and then and then there are all these sort of thoughts like what is it going to feel like I mean we have all these thoughts about myself plunging into the water and those thoughts make it really hard to do it and this, there are many examples of how our thoughts get in the way of just living our life and or even losing our life when that's the appropriate thing to do maybe that goes back Lena, to what you were saying before about the monks who were able to set themselves on fire in order to make a statement. So that's the idea that we want to be able to uh, uh, to be so fully in the moment that we're not being driven, we're not, uh, our life is in a sense pinned down by all the different thoughts that we have, which is often the way it feels for us. Yeah, Jenny. So maybe going back to the original question about fantasy, it's really more about you can have an imagination, but you just don't want to get attached to it and have that become you. But you can still be creative and have an imagination about things. Yeah. All of the teachings, the Dhamma, what we call the teachings of the Buddha, they're just concepts. They're, in a sense, out of the Buddha's imagination. He used his imagination. He used language and stories, metaphors, similes. And this particular kind of imagining has the, the tendency to turn us back to things as they are. You know, so imagination isn't inherently bad at all. It can be very useful. Many beautiful, I mean, most of what we call beauty as human beings is some display of somebody's imagination, you know, put down on ink or painted on a on canvas or turned into music. Yeah, it's about the clinging. You know, can we see something beautiful and then just let go? Can we see something horrendous, let it touch the heart, and then let go? Yeah, Dave. Um, I just was thinking about, for myself, how running is such a thing where I can go out and then just realize, like, this is so great to be able to do this right now, but as I get older, Good to hear about, you know, I mentioned before, just sort of in joking about master of the universe for people who are young. But it, there's nothing that prevents younger people from understanding, like, to really appreciate that the energy of vitality. I mean, it is, it's a beautiful thing. Just like seeing uh, nature in, in the spring and, and early summer when it's just coming alive, it's really a beautiful thing. It's appropriate to see it as a beautiful thing. But it isn't the only beauty, you know. There's also beauty, like you said, in aging. It's beauty. There's a lot of beauty in the fall. We all know that. Yet, it's all about dying or things kind of going away. But it's also beautiful. It's beautiful because it's real, you know. I think that's what makes it beautiful. It stops the mind a little bit. You know, if, we, if you spend hours thinking about 
the guy's tears, and you know it loses beauty very quickly. But the actual moment, you know, because for whatever reason your mind stopped and it, it was just so real, that's really what makes it beautiful. Just a few minutes left. If there are any other thoughts people have on this topic of compassion and wisdom, and we'll continue talking about how compassion is just the expression of wisdom. And remembering the point, just in terms of practicing at home, that the way to ignite this is to bring our heart, bring the mind close to life. Find a way to get close in moments like this moment. To use the challenges as opportunities to be close. To use beautiful experiences as an opportunity to be close. And to notice how wisdom naturally arises in the intimacy. It's when the heart is exposed to life as it is that wisdom arises. Trying to be wise isn't wisdom. It's you know kind of neurosis, probably. But willing to be intimate, willing to be relaxed and open, to be interested, that is the ground for wisdom. So we can experiment with that this week, see what we learn. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Remembering this ancient universal aspiration, may this heart be happy and at ease. And just as we wish for it to be happy and at ease, understanding that everybody here are just hearts that want to be happy too. May everybody here be happy and at ease. They are family, our friends, all beings without exception. Be happy and at ease. May we live our life contributing to the happiness and ease of all beings, including ourselves. Thanks again for coming, everyone. Thanks to the people who came early to clean, to Julian. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.